This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast combining all your dreams into a giant vat whose contents will be distributed to each citizen according to their spiritual density. Today we're discussing the Sandman <laughs> comic by Neil Gaiman that began in 1989 and the first season of its recent TV adaptation. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, and I'm, I'm also going to go on record and say death is for suckers in hopes that higher powers will respect my sass and make me immortal. My name is Anthony LeBlanc. I am a comedian and actor and acting coach for Nickelodeon, and I worked for many years at The Second City as an actor, director, artistic director, and executive producer of the company. My name is Sarah Lynn Brooke. I am a writing professor and writer. And am I dreaming, or are we about to do a podcast about The Sandman? I'm Al, and I'm just trudging my way through the monomyth. <laughs> All right. We're going to do this with the normal group. It turns out, even though Lawrence is a comic fan, he had never read The Sandman and wasn't going to. So I imported Anthony, who has been our comics guy for a few episodes, although you were on Batman with Lawrence. This was, for me, this was like what got me into comics. And it was as an adult. It was like post-grad school when I was in my 20s and some of my brothers-in-law. You know, I just thought comics were some weird kids thing. But this is still way after the 80s. You know, it was way after this came out. But this mm -hmm. and then, you know, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and it's sort of Grant Morrison opened me up to like, oh, there are the, all these, you know, literary adult oriented comics. And that sort of gradually got me to actually being open to reading Batman or something like that. Because some of those, you know, like Dark Knight are also elevated. And then once you get to, into that, then you're more tolerant and open to <laughs> even the more juvenile stuff. So it's, it was a great gateway in for me and I wanted to do an episode on this with the partially examined life years ago before this podcast pretty much pop even existed did not happen for various reasons but very excited that now we actually have a tv show that means everybody will have heard of this thing and it won't be just like some nerd thing that I'm geeking out about Anthony what's your background with this so uh, I started reading comics when I was like ah, like that nine ten-ish age and I definitely had that world where I wound up finding like Sandman earlier than I probably should have in life, just because yeah. I was trying to be cool. So <laughs> the, the same time I was getting, you know, my X Men number one when everything split off into four different X Men was about the same. It was like ninety two, I think, or so of that. And that was the same time I also like, yeah, I think I actually saw Death. I think was the first thing I saw, and then being like, oh, this is cool. What's all this stuff about? So I definitely encountered this during the world of it being produced or put out. It's funny that Neil Gaiman had, you know, when when asked before he was super famous to describe what he did, he would he would say adult comics, but then he had to correct that. No, that doesn't mean what you think. <laughs> but yeah. but from the yeah. point of view of a twelve year old discovering this, like, yeah, the head's exploding in the boobs, and like that would be a, a significant yeah. draw. Al, what was your background with this? Yeah, well, similarly, so I discovered this in the school library, and it certainly wow. shouldn't have been in the school <laughs> library, probably. And I think I was 12 or 13. And I'm pretty sure that to this day, one of the only horror or gore tropes that I really can't stand is anything to do with self-mutilation. And I really think that discovering mm. the Sandman stories at that age is probably what set that off. So yeah, it was certainly the first comic I read that was anything other than a, a standard Marvel superhero comic. And it was a, a really big turning point in terms of developing my genre fiction tastes. 
I think Neil Gaiman's whole world of storytelling really set me on a, a very specific path in terms of what kinds of like fantasy fiction I would enjoy even now. So it's like hugely influential on my on my taste and a really big turning point for me. So Sarah Lynn, I know you're newer to this, but this is not a comic. It's a graphic novel. It's it's yes. you can <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am absolutely new to not necessarily comic books or graphic novels, but Neil Gaiman, I've been following on Twitter and I'm a writer and he's very friendly to other writers and he's a friend to especially new authors. And I was curious about The Sandman once I saw that this show was going to be produced and I was really excited when you suggested that we talk about it because that gave me the excuse to kind of dive in. But yeah, I went into this with no expectations. I watched the show before I read some of the issues of the first volume of the comics. But, you know, I was not a, a Sandman stan by, by any stretch before watching the show. And one of the things that was so daunting about maybe doing this with the Partially Examined Life earlier is because I had read the whole run, you know, the initial run through 96, and felt like that was the novel. And that's what we should talk about. We're not trying to do that today. I have not reread all that <laughs> stuff. It's basically the stuff covered by the show. So volume one, I also discovered just last week that this audio, Audible had been prodding me with this. Here's a free thing. It's Sandman. I was like, come on, an audio version of a graphic novel. What is the freaking point of that? But I finally got down to listening to act one of it this week, which is pretty much the same length. A couple additional episodes gets to the performance of Midsummer Night's Dream is kind of one of the next thing, which has been hinted at in the show that he's interacted with Shakespeare. And so we get to learn more about this. I don't know. It's great that there is this long arc, even though we're only covering this first chunk of it, because they let a lot of things dangle. You know, they introduce characters like, why did you bother doing that? Why are Cain and Abel even in this? It's like, well, just give it some time. Next year, the year after, they'll do some more with these characters. There was a lot of confidence, I thought, in this first season because they were giving us a lot of open threads that I was like, well, they're definitely betting on a, on a season two, that's for sure. What are you guys' initial impressions of the show as a way of, just to finish my recommendation, the audio thing ended up being excellent. And it's actually the way I reviewed. Mo I didn't reread the whole comic, even of this point. I sort of flipped through it. But the audio version is like every single bit of dialogue that is in the comic is in this audio version, plus some additional stuff that presumably Neil Gaiman or maybe the adapter wrote. But Neil Gaiman actually narrates some of it. So it's like describing what's on the page in a very dynamic way with lots of, you know, James McAvoy is the lead and Kat Demings, you know, actors you've heard of. So I would have been okay with that. <laughs> but, you know, now we get this visually realized thing was it all you hoped and dreamed? So I went into the show desperately wanting it to be absolutely perfect. And it wasn't perfect. And I think some of the reasons why, so some of the flaws in it, I think are really interesting in terms of what it takes to adapt a story like Sandman from the comics to the TV. And I think part of what makes it interesting is related to what you were talking about, Mark, in terms of like dropping little bits of stories that are maybe going to come into their own later on. But so much of it was brilliant. I thought so much of the casting was was incredible. A few of the minor characters were a, a little bit grating, but overall, all the performances were brilliant. And two or three of the hours of TV were really close to perfect. I think everybody probably, well, hopefully everybody agrees that this, the episode in the middle where they have the two short stories was a, a really terrific hour of television. 
And was it episode six? They have the sound of her wings and the what's the other story called? That's the one that you referenced in your in your in your intro. Yeah, the name was the guy that lives forever. The guy that lives forever. That I thought was was really made the whole series worth it just to have that hour of TV to be able to go back to. But yeah, overall, a really brilliant attempt at doing something very very difficult with some problems that I think they should be able to fix. Anthony, what'd you think? Yeah, I loved it. It was interesting watching interviews of Neil talking about the adapting part of it. And I think that's that kind of world. I was actually talking to someone on, on at work about the idea of when you have the person that created it adapting the thing, how much better it is versus other random folks, right? So even like the, you take something random like Hunger Games, like where Susan Collins is actually doing the script and makes the choices of what to keep and change or update. It is kind of like this kind of fun thing you can accept versus like, say, Another thing I did enjoy, but like Lord of the Rings, Ring of the Power, before you're like, only have certain amounts of things to adapt a thing, but you don't have all the information legally. Like the idea of this, you don't have John Constantine. So how do you make this character slightly different? Or how do you update for the time shift of, of decades? You know, like that's cool that you have the original author doing that. So you respect and kind of have an interesting perspective. Like, well, what are you going to do with this? You're almost writing a new story sometimes a little bit. And that's fun to get. Well, wasn't, when he first wrote it, it's a DC property. Is that right? Or how is it? Yeah. So it is a DC property. Was he a hired gun for DC to write this? Or would, did he already create? Do you guys know what the backstory is on that? Because I know that he felt a little bit confined by that at the beginning. And you can see that in the opening issues. And it seems like he had a little bit of a do-over here with the show. I think it's entirely normal for, so Alan Moore had done Swamp Thing before this, Mm -hmm. which is an old character Mm -hmm. that he reintroduced. And that was sort of, I think, what kicked off the Vertigo adult-oriented. That's where John Constantine first appeared. Yes, they created Mm -hmm. that character. And so Gaiman was doing the same thing where, and I think what I just heard is that he wanted to do, revive an earlier version of the Sandman. And he was told, do a new character, which is not what I heard before. I I thought that he had insisted he wanted to do a new character, but no, he was told. So, you know, even though Sandman is like a golden age DC character and there'd already been at least two versions of it before, he just ended up incorporating them that like, well, that's the whole reason why this character, even though he's endless, was out of commission for 80 years or whatever in the comic, because that had to count for the time that these other versions of it were running around. And these were just mortals that were inspired by the void that he had left. So it's a pretty weird reason for structuring a major beat in the story around this thing of just the logistics Mm -hmm. of what he was being hired to do. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, I think for me, because I didn't have the background of, of reading the comics and being a fan ahead of time, I found the show a little bit hard to get into only because he is messing with how you structure story. He is, it does feel a little bit disjointed and it was hard for me to kind of get into it because it felt slow. And I didn't know if that was because of the storytelling or if it was because he was really making this for the fans and you needed that context going in, almost like kind of learning a new language. I felt a little bit like that. But by the time episode five rolled around, I was starting to get into what the vibe was what the show was about. And I was 
pretty well engaged. By midpoint, I was I was pretty well engaged. That kind of brings me to the big criticism I had with the show, which was just the pacing. And I think it was a pacing problem which came from ironically trying to be too faithful to the story as it actually plays out in that first run of comics. Yeah. What ends up being the main story of the first season, the story of the vortex and of this kid running around trying, yeah, Dollhouse, trying to find her family. It's not an interesting enough story to play out over as many episodes as they made it. And I think that was the difference between that and The Sound of Her Wings or the, I hope you guys watched the, the surprise bonus 11th episode as well, where they had the Dream of a Thousand Cats and those other stories, which are just oh, yeah. sized <laughs> perfectly for how much story there is to tell. And it just, it felt like they stretched the doll's house over a few too many hours and just, it lost its pace for me. But that is really, really is the only big problem I think I had with the show. But I think it's interesting, given the way that they tried to make that adaptation work as that being like the linchpin story of the first series. I think that was an interesting choice, but it didn't quite pay off. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it's interesting in the idea of like, if you think about it, if I'm, give me if I'm wrong, because I did not go back and read. I was just like, I remember these pretty well. I'm pretty sure this Nocturne and Dollhouse is like 10 issues, right? All together, eight to 10 issues. Like if you put those all together. Something so, like so, that, yeah. So like in a weird way, and I know that, you know, the people in the house are more fleshed out and that kind of stuff. So I wonder in a, in a weird way, he made a choice to be like, each episode is so many issues. You know what I mean? Like that seems to be a little bit of a thing. Are you looking to have, if you're going with the idea of whatever his deal is, are you going to have 75, an equivalent of 75 issues of, of a comic and you're pacing it out over that run of three seasons or whatever it is or four seasons, right? I think the slowness is actually not a matter of being faithful to the comics because they try to really humanize and make dramatic things that, at least the way I read comics, or the double speed at which I was listening to the audio version to get through it in time for this, they just brush by. So like, let's really try to make John D human. Let's really make the whole thing of the woman who was getting pregnant from a dream because her husband was in a dream. Like that is so drawn out from what's in the comic. The character is really doesn't play that role in the comic whatsoever. It's just one it's little just, small story, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So trying to make it more human that way, maybe there did need to be some picking and choosing The worst offense, I thought, was the drag show, which in the comic is just referred to that this guy's in a drag show and he has a dream briefly about it. But like, I guess whenever you're, I've seen other shows that do this, but usually they don't do this till like season eight, where we're having some sort of performance within a performance. Let's just show the whole thing. (laughs) Like, don't do that. Don't show a whole song. It's not necessary. <laughs> and I do feel a lot of that has to do with updating, right? And that, that's where I would say a lot of the things that are in this, especially going into the housemates, is more updating. It's the idea of like, you instantaneously have people that at the time are kind of like, oh, this is not something I've seen in comics. So like, oh, this is something we expect. And so I think you get a full drag show because it's then having identification of characters and people that look like humans that we are able to represent. And it felt like that was part of the case. So like you saw more of the uniqueness of the people in the house because they do happen to be a very diverse group of humans, you know, and you're, and you're highlighting that now in half of your season where you now have a character that is a drag performer or two women who are unidentified what their relationship is. You know, and that, that kind of gives you a little bit of that 2022-ness to your story. 
Yeah. And that found family also, it took place in Florida. (laughs) That's just so, so random. It didn't feel like Florida to me. (laughs) And I would also ask a question to maybe our our wonderful writer who loves his work. Like, I feel like going back to like, I'm trying to remember the episode's name, uh, the doctor's wife for Mm -hmm. Doctor Who, like when he does television, it seems really weird. And oddly paced versus to like what normal television would happen, you know? So like I think about, I thought about that episode of Doctor Who and be like, I love it so much. This is weird. There's a lot that's similar to Doctor Who in the way that this show has been put together, especially the best of it. Because one of the things that I I like most about the just kind of short stories that they told a single episode, the kind of bottle episodes that they had. Is is one of my favorite kinds of stories you have when you're telling a kind of overarching narrative about a larger than mythological life figure like the Sandman or the Doctor is where the story just happens around the fact that this character exists and you get to tell stories like in The Doctor's Wife where you're just drilling into the, the relationship between the Doctor and the TARDIS, which is just something that the show takes for granted most of the time, or like The Dream of a Thousand Cats where you've just got like the fact that cats can dream. You just put that together with the existence of the Sandman, you get this incredible story. But it also speaks, I think, interestingly to what happens. One of the problems maybe with trying to adapt Neil Gaiman, which is a thing in the American Gods adaptation as well, which is that a lot of Neil Gaiman's ideas work fantastically well in comics because they're very interesting. Lots of them are very interesting, only at a very shallow level. And it's something I think he kind of makes fun of himself when he's putting ideas in the author's mind in the Calliope story when he's giving him like all of these silly ideas like two old women take a weasel on holiday and you think well that's exactly the kind of thing that Neil Gaiman could get a one panel gag out of but as soon as you try and stretch that over an hour of television it's kind of maybe that's where some of the pacing issues come from is some ideas that kind of work really well in two pages maybe don't stretch out that and that's what I was thinking of that, that idea with the doctor's wife. If for folks who don't know, that is an episode of Doctor Who that he wrote. And that when it's something original for TV, it is not different than what he writes. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not, I think it's less mm-hmm. of an adaptation of translating and more like a choice. This is how he likes to create television. Just him in different media. It's, yeah. a, it's an anapomorphic version of like, I take a thing and I make it anapomorphic and this is my thing. But if we have this central character who is also so passive and in some ways unsympathetic. You know, he's kind of a whiner sometimes and it's tough when, and then you put him in a glass bubble for a while. And for me, because I didn't have this history with the comic book, it was hard for me to to latch on right at the beginning because this guy, I was like, am I supposed to care about this guy? Because I didn't. I didn't until he started having it, that, that walk and talk with death. I cared about him because she did. And I, I have to say, he's a tough one. He's a tough protagonist to root for. So let me throw this journey out here. Think about the fact of like, which is like interesting working with kids from my job. Uh, so many people are in love with the late 80s, early 90s right now. Like the cure is very popular again. Nirvana is very popular again. And that's the world that I mean, when I read these comics, it was like, oh, this is Robert Smith, like made into a superhero <laughs> and, um, and hot, the rise of Hot Topic and goth kids is what I grew up with in the 90s. Right. And so there's so many kids that are kind of in that world, too. So it's interesting. It comes out at the same time. And I know a lot of the kids on my show that are older are into this show a lot, too. It's also just the most 
outrageous self-insert character anyone's ever done. It's just clearly like this is Neil Gaiman's perfect version of himself. And the things that we don't like about Dream in the comic and in the show, those are also clearly things that Neil Gaiman thinks are a bit shit about himself and wants us to share in that. This is partly related to sort of the problem with like a Superman story, right? That he can do anything. So how are you going to create any obstacles for him at all? And then it also is the issue with like the first Mandalorian episode. The character does not talk, right? And he's not, <laughs> is not sympathetic. Is, you know, Mandalorian had a literal mask, but this guy had this otherworldly sense. So it's, we have to create these weird stories that don't revolve around his own challenges a lot of the time. Or, you know, we can do some things like, oh, well, we depower him at the beginning some, somehow. And I thought it was interesting in the comic, actually, that he has enough strength to curse this person who has imprisoned him and that uses up enough of his energy that he's basically helpless after that that he was so overcome by revenge so we're getting a very deeply flawed character right from the beginning to give us room for growth and right there in the Hobbes story where he becomes friends with a mortal and he's so offended that a mortal would say oh you're lonely and you want to be my friend and then by the end of it like yeah okay you know supposed to show us like there's going to be room for growth with this character what did you guys think of the extra insertion of, of Matthew the Raven in places that he was not in the comic, going down to hell with him, going because we need somebody who is sort of a stand-in for the audience that doesn't know what's going on yeah. for those parts. You've got Pat Oswalt for the whole day, uh-huh. so you have to use him. <laughs> <laughs> that being weird, it was weird because I, I love Pat Oswalt. It was just really like, that's weird. That's a weird voice to hear. That's weird. <laughs> so do I. I thought it was so distracting. I just kept thinking, that's Pat Oswalt. I could not stop thinking that. It seems like he's such a well-connected <laughs> geek that he gets just to be, yeah. to do any of the properties he that he wants to and be I inserted him. in. Mark Hamill was the big one for me where it was like 15 minutes of thinking, I know, I know that voice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, the anthropomorphic scarecrow that I guess will show up more later. He was only a few lines, right? <laughs> this time. Let's stop for some quick sponsor talk. I have a podcast network you should check out. The Geek Freaks Network has 11 podcasts covering an array of pop culture topics. From gaming to Star Trek, they have it all. Each podcast is professionally edited for a clear sound and pleasant listening experience. Best of all, they support all fandoms. You won't hear anybody bashing on your favorite movie or game. All fandoms are celebrated and appreciated. So if you're looking for a new place to hang out, just Google Geek Freaks and have fun. And then also, if you, you think about slow, like, and this is also funny to me too, like, I did like some of the things and like, oh, that took like almost the entire comic run to have that happen. And it happened in the first eight episodes mm-hmm. or nine episodes. And that was kind of cool. Like, as far as just like, was the new character Lucent, or Lucent stuff, like the Lucian, Lucian, uh, but like in that version, like, you just get the acceptance of like, okay, you can do stuff much sooner. <laughs> Because that doesn't, that doesn't really happen until a little later on, right? As far as the dream accepting the work that is happening in that kind of world of like... I don't remember exactly what happens beyond the these episodes, but... She, I feel it's like in like issue 30 or the something. The character's definitely like made more human and relatable. Like it's basically just Alfred the butler in the comic. Like there's... there's <laughs> and then later on, it becomes more Alfred-like. We're like, oh, Alfred's doing stuff and he's making stuff happen, you know? I felt like it was unearned. The whole, I'm supposed to care about this dragon dissolving. Like, no, I don't care about this. Why is this? Oh, what a sacrifice is being made here. What magic. I don't know. I was not immediately seduced. I'm, I'm afraid I was. You were. It, it to- <laughs> totally, yeah. The, the cuteness of the CGI gargoyle just got, <laughs> got me immediately. And I was devastated. Wait, was that Gregor? Gregory, yeah. 
Gregory, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I wasn't invested by, by that point, so. No, Fine. it did seem to happen kind of quickly, though, and I, and I was lo- and I was looking forward to Kate and Abel having a bit more setup time. They're a really great pair in the book, and it's kind of weird that everything had to happen. A lot happened over those first couple of episodes. I mean, did they even explain in the TV show? There probably was a line in there to say we're Kate and Abel from the first story. Oh, because this is a land of stories, and so it's not that these are like the ghosts of Cain and Abel that were real people. It is, you know, creating this metaphysics of fiction, of relationship between dreams and reality, which needs more exploration, certainly. Yeah, they didn't do a lot to set up the actual worlds. They did have that explanation, but it was in the following episode after the gargoyle had been brought back. That was weird as well. I remember thinking that if I didn't already know this story, this would be confusing. Well, it's a different one. It's Goldie. It's a different character. Goldie. (laughs) Yeah, any, we've talked a little about how it was updated. Any other thoughts about we're not only going to have Matthew the Raven there for longer, we're going to have the Corinthian in there longer, actually helping the people that initially trapped him to make him a big baddie for the whole season. I don't know. These seemed like reasonable, dramatic moves to me. Yeah, I like that. I mean, he was such a funny <laughs> character and it could have gone sideways with that character. But I thought the actor, his performance was fantastic. And I was in at that point. So that whole section was fine. But I didn't know, did he have less of a role at the beginning? Well, it's just a more contained story, right? You get through that dollhouse mm-hmm. storyline very quickly. I don't think he was the motivating factor in him getting, you know, bringing him to Earth where he could be captured. If that is, in fact, they were implying some sort of causal connection that if he hadn't gone out, and, and Lucian is, in fact, worried about him going out. Yeah, none of that was in the comic. He's just summoned directly from the dreaming, I guess. Like, why not? He's <laughs> well, he didn't dream make, make him, right? Isn't that he created him? But there's not like that kind of weirdness of like the, ah, uh, this is the cause of all the things. It's more he shows up in that story. As someone who, like the others, is taking advantage of the fact. And shows that, mm-hmm. though. Right. Or, or, like, just doesn't know what to do. Like, now that the dream lord is gone, so, like, I guess we can run amok. And the serial convention. I mean, come on. <laughs> that, was, that was gold right there for me. <laughs> yeah, versus him being the puppet behind the scenes, making everything happen. That's not what happened. Yeah, Al, I'm surprised that you found the dollhouse so stretched out because so much of it was devoted to the serial killer convention. Did that not add enough? I don't know. It just didn't hold my attention for those. I think it was three or four episodes that it was spanning and it just seemed like far too much. Just seemed like a lot of like going from one place to another. And I don't remember a huge amount happening. It's like I remember the ideas being like toyed with like the, the serial killer convention and like the and the house with the weird people in it. So much more of the abused kid. Yeah. So much more of the abused kid. And none of it really felt urgent or like it needed to go on for as long as it did. I don't know. It felt like wasted real estate, a lot of it. <laughs> it felt weird to have like flabby sections. Mm-hmm. And then I've seen interviews where they talked about like, you know, the showrunner and him talking about like, oh, people love the Corinthians. We added more in there. You know, you get more of that. But I, I do wonder if you think through the Nocturne storyline, right? Of that's weird. You also have two or three characters you can't use. And because of DC rights it, issues, is that? Yeah, because you don't have Constantine, you don't have like a Martian Manhunter mm-hmm. world in it. You, have, you know, you have none of the things that are going to have your like stuff that grounds that in a way. So it's just a weird story where the dollhouse 
storyline is a little more typical to what we see on television. So I think mm. that feels more sure. like something if you're expanding one of those two into what you're doing as your first season, as your mm-hmm. two first storylines, that one makes more sense of grounding you into this is what he is, dreams, this kind of stuff. And also you don't, I mean, you literally have an entire now super popular television series based off of the other person that's a part of that first story too. It's very different, Lucifer, right? So no, I wondered that, though if some true. of the performances, some of the performances, they felt like they were in a different stories altogether. Like I didn't necessarily believe, I believed Corinthian, but I don't know that everyone else was as affected by that character as maybe they, I thought they should have been. Nothing against this poor kid actor, but Jed, the brother, he just seemed so light and nothing really bothered him. And I was like, your mom left, you're abused. Now you're being kidnapped by this nightmare, literal nightmare. He just didn't seem to hold on to that trauma, which good for him, but it didn't seem very realistic. And that didn't pull me in in that that storyline. If there was ever a show that was going to have tone problems, it would be this one, I guess. In terms of the pacing of the season, I take everything you were saying. I think everything you're saying, Anthony, is right. I guess my thing is it probably just seems like it could have just been a shorter season. I think most of the choices they made in terms of what stories to tell were probably broadly right. But some of the arcs which took a couple of episodes probably could have been done in one. For some reason, I seem to remember some of the fantasies in the dollhouse that the characters being more involved, yeah. having the, the Barbie going to her fantasy world with Martin Tenbones, the giant. Like, I wanted to see more of that. Like, I felt like there was more of that in the comic. I don't know that I reviewed that specifically for that. Maybe it was just so memorable that just having these things pop out, you know, it was the same at the beginning, like things are happening all over the world. Well, they show Unity, Kincaid falling asleep and not waking up. But then there were like four more stories in the comic that they threw in there that give you a sense of the scope of things. And I don't know what I think of like, well, we can't tell all those stories that quickly. Let's be more deliberate about focusing on a couple of them. I think that was a right choice, but I guess my analysis of all these problems is that the whole thing was almost by necessity overthought, (laughs) that there's something primal about, here, I wrote this script. You, the artist, take this and do what you want with it. And yes, there are some editors that might tell us, don't do this, don't do that. But pretty much it's just done. So there's, you know, there's a primacy to that form. Whereas now we've had all these years go by, have all these different attempts to make it into a movie or a TV show or something. And now we're finally getting it. Then, of course, they're going to overthink everything so much. It's going to seem like it was put together by committee. I just think that's going to lead to tone problems and some sterility. Like you don't have a primary artist who this was just their immediate splat against the wall. There's something that's going to be very primal and awesome about that. That just can't be in this. What do we think of the thing about that? Also the world of like, I think you went with safety, right? Is that you took the safest story that makes the most sense of a murder mystery, so to speak, or a serial killer world, right? That this makes sense Mm -hmm. where, Again, like in Nocturne, you have the whole thing where you see the whole story of the person that's in the prison in hell. Like you see that entire thing play out of like how Dream meets them and right. And there's a whole like the story of how they got there. You don't have the weirdness of the individual stories until episode six and episode 11, you know, of like Mm -hmm. going with the anthology issue loosely tied together by this main character he pops in out of people's dreams. Because even like, I want to say if I'm right or wrong, like, you know, the woman that now is the mother's best friend, like that's the entire thing just on a plane, right? That's, that's the entire like kind of 
world of her living out that life and dream being kind of being in that world of helping her go through this death of her husband thing, right? No, I think that's a really good point. Like of all of the early stories, it's probably Doll's House is probably the one that is the most resembles a story that you would tell on TV. So it's probably the right one to to introduce the show. With. Beginning, yeah. middle, and end. It has an arc. Yeah, I guess I get now why they would begin the story the way that they began it. But it just seemed like at the time the worst place to begin it because I don't have any emotional stakes in this character. And now I'm supposed to root for him as he gets back his powers. You know, but I guess... It wasn't until after episode six that I really understood why we needed to start there. And in the comic, you do get a couple of DC shout outs in the first issue or two that help you like, okay, I at least buy into this weirdness. Right. I think it was just always a problem with the comic that when I was thinking of like recommending the comic to people, I'd kind of say, can you just start with the doll's house? Don't read this Preludes and Nocturnes. Because it not only has the Martian Manhunter and things from DC Comics, if you don't (laughs) care about that, if you don't know about that, it's not going to resonate. But it's just tonally weird and compared to the rest of it, which has a certain relaxed, sublime character, you know, which is exactly what we're talking about and what's great about the episode with death. So I'm surprised they did as good a job as they did with it, frankly, in terms of making this something that we're going to provide a texture, we're going to give you time to breathe. We're going to have really nice music. We're going to have really nice visuals. Of course, people complained about the Netflix lens issue. I just read about this. Why are the edges of the frame, like when he's just going to the mansion at the beginning of the thing, why are the edges of the frame blurred? There was just weird visual stuff going on that I wasn't... Anyway. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking that all of their fantasy series, they all look the same. It looks just like The Watcher or something. You know, it's like it all looks the same. I found the most compelling stuff was stuff that didn't have anything to do with CGI. The most compelling scenes were when he's just having a conversation with somebody else. And I thought that was what the point was, was to make him more human in a way and to help him figure out who he was after he lost 100 years. He, he didn't know who he was anymore. And those discoveries for me were the most exciting parts of the story. Another thing that was cut from the comic is this, instead of just having, for simplification purposes, I love there are three heads of hell that it was not just Lucifer. It's this like floating pine cone creature with a bunch of eyes and like an upside down flies head with legs. Like I'm just looking at the pictures right here and each of them has their own font. And, uh, you know, I can see how that would be an unnecessary complication and an extra CGI burden that would maybe make it not so cool that they had, uh, the amazing actress she was they got great. to do Lucifer. Gwendolyn Christie, yes. yes. Gwendolyn Christie, yeah. I think that's probably a simple storytelling give as well because everybody knows that Lucifer is, is in charge of hell, right? And if you start trying to introduce three lords of hell, then it's just an extra bit of complication. I like to think that they would have had the, the upside down fly's head if they'd have thought it was narratively significant. Maybe later, maybe later. Because I, I feel like these characters are important later, that there's fighting over who's going to be in charge of hell Maybe I'm confusing it with the Lucifer comic by Mike Carey, the spinoff of this. So yeah, the Sandman. Here's where it gets like the stupid weird thing, right? Where that totally could be technically owned by Fox. You know what I mean? In a stupid oh, way. Gaiman would have re- retained the rights to use Lucifer in his own stuff, surely. But it's specifically like, that's the weirdness of... Is that like, like Sony and to- Spider-Man? Yeah, you might be able to retain certain parts of it, but you might not... They might still hold on the rights to certain things we have to pay money out to get even tertiary characters out of a thing. And when you buy something. 
I don't think in the Lucifer TV show they ever told the story of like the season of mists or why Lucifer is in quite why Lucifer is in LA in the first place. And they definitely tease in the Sandman show. They definitely tease that that's where they're going. And that's the thing with rights are weird. Like even if you never put it in your show, you still retain the property, which is why Marvel always had that hard point of like, yes, who is a mutant? Who's not? So like the the Mm -hmm. Fox owned until the merger certain things, even if they never used it in anything, because they, in their contract, they structured in a way where they got the rights to certain things based on lineage, just to hold on to and not let you use. It was just like you buy up stuff just to have someone never make it. Just knowing how picky Neil Gaiman has been about this particular adaptation, I'm sure he wouldn't be doing it if he didn't get to tell what is probably my favorite story in the whole, like long story in the whole series. It's very special. No spoilers, though. Yeah, we should just in talking about sort of related properties, I just ran across this article and researching how there was an earlier movie version that had apparently such a bad script that Neil Gaiman himself leaked it to the press so that they could savage it and get the whole thing canceled. <laughs> but that is oh, was that with Joseph Gordon Levitt? No, it was, was that before the one? that, I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Joseph Gordon Levitt thing, I was disappointed that, you know, because picturing him doing this character, like that was pretty exciting. Maybe he was already too old. I don't know. But it was. Was he attached to a version of this version of the show or was uh, it? It was a, a film. It was going to be a film. Oh, it was a movie. Yeah. And that rights thing is that rights thing is weird just because, like, even on the current show I'm on right now, where we're doing a live action version of the animated show, the animated team has seniority over us of what we can and can't use in our TV show. Where if we want to use a character, the character has to be accurate to the animated character when it's cast. And also some things they just won't let us use. And it's just that and we're in the same company, you know, we're all, all owned by Paramount, you know, where there's just that weird thing that happens around how contracts get structured in weird ways that they come up in weird ways. Why well, I'm sure in the end, and this is probably what's going to happen, the rights are bought in a certain way to be able to have access to things is a reason why probably it still has that WB, you know, similar logo that all the Berlanti shows have to make sure that you still have the rights and access to stuff. But even in that land of the Berlanti versus movie stuff, you know, in the pre now James Gunn world, which hopefully would be better. You have a difference of just who can use what and the argument over like, what can show up in Smallville? What can show up in this thing? What can't Mm -hmm. show up in this? Is this the same thing? And it's all technically the same company. So did any of the rest of you spend any significant time with the show Lucifer, which I coincidentally with some I watched with my wife and we just finished the whole thing this week. And the last season I thought was actually pretty damn good, even though this is a show that when I watched the pilot, it's like, we're going to take this character, and I just read, you know, the Mike Carey whole run of comics. We're going to take this character and make him in a cop drama. In a, <laughs> like, this has just seemed the laziest bit of TV writing I've ever <laughs> seen. And I was disgusted with it. It wasn't until like a bunch of people recommended to me that I'm like, okay, I'll return to this, convince my wife to watch it. She was, I don't know about this. This seems super cheesy. But then it sort of grew on you. And, it, you know, it's, it's good sort of comfort TV, not that different than. I don't know, Psych or these other shows, Bones, uh, you know, these. And it has some sort of, yes, it continues to be cheesy, but it has some sort of metaphysically interesting things, I don't know, about in setting up the world. And, oh, hell is just self-actualization. It's just people torturing themselves with their own guilt. That's why the devil is not actually bad for torturing you. 
he's just, you know, helping you do what you're trying to do. You know, it's some weird stuff. <laughs> That's one of Gaiman's big ideas, isn't it? But I never got further with the show than the pilot because I, I had the same reaction as you, which is, oh, this is a character I really like and they've done terrible things to him. So I'm going <laughs> to leave it there. Other people recommended it to me, but I didn't really start watching it until after the Crisis on Infinite Earth crossover. And that then made me like, okay, I like this character in this specific scene. So, because there's a whole thing where Constantine goes to Lucifer's client club to like question a favor to bring Oliver back to life. Spoiler alert. This is just uh, a comic thing, a, right? This is not a TV. No, no, no. This is TV. This is in the Berlanti oh. Arrowverse. Oh, all right. So, so, like, so like Berlanti is somewhat involved in almost every version of the TV shows so far we've had that have been in that CW or even the DC universe stuff. So I didn't realize Lucifer was in there. I didn't, li- was, I didn't realize Lucifer was Arrowverse. So it's, technically he is. So like in Crisis and Nurse, Titans is a Berlanti thing. Doom Patrol is a Berlanti thing. So there's a whole point at Crisis where you see there are two worlds, other worlds. But that's part of the storyline in Arrow to bring Oliver back to life is to get to the Lazarus Pit. They have to go to Lucifer's bar in this show and they show up in LA and John Constantine is like bringing him, you know, a bunch of people there and it's a whole thing. This is why Anthony is with us because it's <laughs> a, yeah. a depth yeah. of commitment to the franchise that I do not have. I am so lost. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about when it sounds like a different language to me. It's, yeah, it's just the fact that all the TV shows and one giant crossover, they've smashed everything that this one writer wow. puts together in this and it basically justified that Stargirl, all the shows he's ever been involved with, all live in the same multiverse, basically. Which Sandman is not in, despite being a source material for. This is definitely a different Lucifer, a different Mazikine. They're not fun-loving. Yeah, a different Constantine. Different. You know, so it's because like, Constantine's on Legends of Tomorrow, you know, for, which is also the same actor who played Constantine from the TV show that is a separate TV show. Yeah, so it's impossible to cancel TV shows anymore because I watched that Constantine with my son and I'm like, that seemed like a pretty good show. I had read all the, the Constantine comics or at least, you know, quite a few runs of it through its better authors. There's so much juice available there. I'm not, the show wasn't great, but I wanted this character to persist in some way and not just as, did I hear something about Keanu Reeves, Constant, Keanu, Constantine Wasn't he two? in a movie? They're doing a second Constantine and I think Keanu Reeves is going to be, you know, the character again. A character modeled after Sting as a young person, as British as British can be, and blonde, and then having Keanu, yeah, whatever. Whoa. <laughs> it was an okay movie, I thought, at the time. I, I haven't revisited it ever. <laughs> I was annoyed because it's the best of the Constantine stories, and they made it. They did a bad job of it, and now they're not going to be able to have another go. Unless, unless, this, new, unless this new movie, they are just going to tell exactly the same story again <laughs> and do it better. Well, we're wrapping up the metaphysics. I actually tagged a couple quotes here. So at the end of the doll's house, the character, what's her name, who was the Vortex, is writing her story. Rose. You know, the whole thing starts as a very H.P. Lovecraft thing. And so this is, uh, if my dream was real, it means the world's about as solid and as reliable as a layer of scum on the top of a well of black water, which goes down forever. And there are things in the depths that I don't even want to think about. It means that we're just dolls. We don't have a clue what's really going down. We just kid ourselves that we're in control of our lives while a paper's thickness away, things that would drive us mad if we thought about them for too long, play with us and move us around from room to room and put us away at night when they're tired or bored. And this is sort of coupled with then, in the same issue, later Sandman is talking to Desire and saying, actually, it's the people that are in charge. 
it's not us. Like we're there to serve them, which is something that, you know, came up in the episode of the TV show with death. I don't know. Is this just a little Lovecraftian nonsense, you know, that's in half the Stephen King stories of, or do you take any of this seriously? It doesn't seem to be something that was really emphasized in the show to give you some deep sense of vertigo about the world, which some fantasy properties, you know, I remember seeing Naked Lunch or whatever and walking out of that theater like, I don't know what the world is anymore, like just feeling a visceral sense of disorientation. And I don't get that out of this at all. Like one of Gaiman's key literary devices, if you like, is to talk about storytelling as a core human function. The idea of stories and storytelling as being one of the most important things that people do, which is evidenced by his decision to make Dream of the Endless, like occupy one of the seven most pivotal roles to describe one of the seven most essential things that mortal people do. One of the things I think the show did really well is bring that out in certain areas. I don't think the TV show has had that moment yet of like it did with my 13-year-old self in the school library, like blowing my mind about, oh my God, maybe that this is, Gamer was my first exposure to the Pratchett idea that, you know, the gods only exist as long as we believe in them. It's like, oh my God, that's so, that's so true in such a profound way. And the show hasn't really got there yet, but where I think it did an extremely good job of like pulling at that philosophical thread was in the Dream of a Thousand Cats story, where it made really explicit in a way that I had never kind of cottoned on to before how that story is about political revolution and, and the essential role in political change, the sheer ability to imagine a different political reality is. They pulled that out, that story really well in the show. I thought. So maybe the bigger metaphysical mind blowing is going to still come. I would argue most stories are about storytelling to a certain degree. And certainly Gaiman is, he's thinking about his legacy here. He's in some ways comparing himself to some of the, the great populist storytellers like Shakespeare and Chaucer. But I think when it comes right down to it, the lesson that most of the characters take away is that they do have agency. They can change, including, I think that's what we're supposed to be getting with Dream, is that he can change too, even though he's very stubborn and a whiner. But ultimately, the takeaway is that each one of these characters needs to learn that they have agency over over their own lives. And I would say it's in there. It is also a little biased from having you know read it, so I'm looking for it, right? But there's a couple, like four or five moments in watching it where it was like, oh, here are the things, here are the things, right? You have the desire conversation, you have the conversation with Calliope, you have this conversation with Death, you know, the conversation with his now friend. There's a lot of things like as an acceleration of his journey, which I know definitely does take longer in, in the comic of him being more human or more connected to humans in a way that's not as distant as the King of Dreams. And I think back to specifically the idea of Calliope stuck where she is because of there's no one to help her. No one has power, you know, and that the idea, the thing with the endless is that as long as humans exist or mortals exist, they will exist. And there's, there's that, and that's kind of the interesting, fun thing that I think that also you hint a little bit with the idea of, you know, even him and Lucifer's battle. I thought that was a great thing to like showcase early on this idea of how the endless have this power that kind of persists because of what they represent, which is the embodiment of the base 
of what we are. And I think that's what makes it kind of cool. Like the idea like, yeah, the King of Dreams could go against Lucifer because of that thing when that hope thing was kind of dope. You know, I think that's what's cool. All right. Thank y'all for joining. So all of us are going to be on the after talk. You can go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop to get that. Thank you, all you listeners. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.